0: There was nothing particularly unusual about
1: the outline. World Dispatch. It's Wednesday, November 29th, 2017. I'm Adrian Jeffries. Today on The Dispatch, I talked to Stephen Wilds about the perils of handheld gaming when you're legally blind. And then I talked to Jeremy Gordon about the latest Watchmen spinoff. Here's The Dispatch The future. The original Game Boy came out in 1989, and since then, portable consoles have been a popular segment of the market. But for people with vision impairment, they've also been too small to see. Writer Stephen Wilde has been gaming since he was a kid, and for him, this problem hasn't gotten much better since then. Stephen, let's talk about video games. How would you describe your relationship with video games?
0: A very long and frustrating one no i've I've played video games since I was very young. Um, I remember my mother bringing home an Atari that a co-worker gave to her, And we only had the Atari for about six months before the Nintendo Entertainment System became very popular. And once I played that, you know the rest was kind of history, as they say.
1: and one thing that might make you somewhat of an unconventional gamer is that you're actually legally blind.
0: Correct. Um, my, um, I'm an albino, um, I, uh, an individual with albinism, and so my albinism actually uh, has caused me to have a pretty significant vision problem. Um, you know, I'm what some classify as legally blind. Um, sometimes it has other names, but basically, it just means that I'm. Uh, impaired enough that I cannot operate a vehicle, a lot of like larger machinery, stuff like that. There's a, there's a list of things that you would rather me not do.
1: It seems like um you've basically, you know, some games are more frustrating than others. I'm sure, but you you know, you basically are able to play um most games that are designed for people who are sighted
0: most. um i've I've had to kind of realize that. Things with a lot of reading can be very problematic for me. Anything with like really small sprites. And, you know, I mentioned Call of Duty earlier. I've kind of given up on those games because as they become more modern and things look more realistic, it makes it even harder to see.
1: And there's one category that has especially given you trouble.
0: Yes, that's correct. Uh, And that would be the handheld market.
1: So the first handheld was basically a Nintendo's Game Boy, the first mainstream handheld. I think.
0: Yeah, um, I remember seeing a lot of other people with them at first, and this was you know right after they came out, hot new selling item. I went to this like after school program with, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to try it?" And so of course, you know, I jumped on the opportunity and thought this is going to be amazing. Um, and so I remember taking it that first time, and I remember the guy had. Um, uh, Super Mario land on there and I start jumping around and I could see the character move and then I saw like enemies coming and then I, I Died like a few times like in a row, you know um, Ran into an enemy too close that I thought I had more room to jump on Fell you know down the hole that I didn't quite see how close Mario was to the ledge It was incredibly disheartening to know that this thing that, you know, once I realized it was a possibility, once I knew that you could have this in the palm of your hand and then to have it, you know, kind of snatched away like that.
1: How big was the original screen?
0: Uh, I believe it was right under three inches.
1: So pretty small. Yes. Has your experience with handheld gaming improved at all as the devices got more sophisticated?
0: Uh, The screen size did go up a little bit. You know, you have um, your PSP has a right under a four inch screen. I think it's like 3.8. But even closer to that, like the Game Gear screen was like, I think it was like 3.2 or 3.3. And that wasn't much bigger than the Game Boy. But, you know, it had color. And a lot of people thought, oh, well, color's got to make it easier to distinguish. And it does. But the problem is then when you get into adding something like color, there are different challenges. Like now the backgrounds are so much more colorful and they're not as plain as what the Game Boy screens were. There's more distracting stuff where my eyes will try to lock on or focus on, you know, something else in the background that I can't quite tell what it is yet, but I didn't see the thing that was actually trying to kill my character, you know, instead, because I was focusing on the wrong thing. Um, I love playing Mario 64 It's probably my favorite game of all time, but even on the new two DS, it's very hard to play for very long and it's very hard to see because now there's so much in the distance, you know, it's a 3d game. So you have to look across the field and see, you know, where you're supposed to be going and try to do these precise jumps. And it's just not easy.
1: Has anything happened recently to make you more optimistic that these games will be made with people with vision impairment in the future?
0: The Switch definitely is kind of a step in that direction. Um, so, obviously, the Switch has a rather large screen. What I do think is helping is the stuff like what like Mortal Kombat did. Uh, Mortal Kombat X and Injustice 2... Are putting in uh, audio cues for people who are visually impaired. Um, you have people who, for a lot of newer mobile games, are making it where you can zoom in on a lot of stuff. So that does make me somewhat hopeful.
1: What would the ideal handheld gaming system look like if it were built to be maximally accessible?
0: Well, obviously, with the Switch, you know, like I said, we have a pretty big screen, and that's already. You can't just fit the Switch easily in your pocket. It's too big for that. You know, ideally, not not to look too much into the future and speculate on technology, but holograms were something that I remember a couple of people talking about, having a digital screen that projected to a more magnified version using holograms. So imagine if you wanted to play Sonic the Hedgehog on your Game Gear, but instead of using just the screen, it projected to... Um, a larger, you know, maybe three to four times the size of the actual screen holographic projection of Sonic the Hedgehog. When it comes to gaming, you know, I keep an eye on stuff like VR because I think, you know, VR is going to be very difficult for me. But if I could find a way to use it well, something like VR might be a great. You know, think think about a mobile VR set where you have your 3DS hooked into the VR headset. And so at that point, the screen size wouldn't be an issue at all. So I guess what I'm trying to say is I think in the next few years, I don't know if we'll see anything that's going to come out that's going to really be a miraculous fix for me. However, you know, maybe 10, 15 years from now, very possible.
1: Stephen Wilds is a writer based in Georgia. Alan Moore's Watchmen is one of the most acclaimed superhero comics of all time. It was a standalone miniseries published during the Reagan era, as a commentary on the then-contemporary superhero culture. Or at least, it was supposed to be standalone. DC Comics has started to release its latest and boldest Watchmen spinoff, called Doomsday Clock. And, as Outline editor and longtime Watchmen fan Jeremy Gordon found, it might be both a cash grab and actually kind of good. By the way, we're gonna be talking about some mild spoilers from Doomsday Clock. Hi Jeremy. Hey. Watchmen is in the pantheon of like, serious, critically acclaimed graphic novels. Why do you think it struck such a chord?
2: superhero comics started out as a medium that was primarily aimed at children i mean that's why many of these characters were so colorful why many of the adventures were very one note you know the bad guy gets punched in the face good wins Superman. but as time went on the usually adult creators of the comics became more interested in pursuing mature storylines and with watchmen in particular Uh, Alan Moore and his co-creator were taking these sort of well-worn superhero tropes and characters that had been around for decades and using them to spin more of a realistic commentary on what would the world actually be like if we had superheroes in it.
1: So Watchmen is hugely successful now and like a lot of hugely successful superhero comic book franchises, its creator no longer has control over it.
2: Mm hmm so traditionally, because nobody ever expected that in the comic book industry would grow into such a multi-million-dollar business, uh, most creators signed away the rights to their characters as soon as they created them. You know, famously, I think the creators of Superman signed away the rights to Superman, who would become this incredible pop culture icon for, I think, $130. With Watchmen in particular, I believe the story was that Alan Moore signed a contract giving away the rights with the caveat that they that the rights would eventually revert back to him once Watchmen went out of print and at the time there wasn't such a burgeoning market for graphic novels or the collected editions of comic books and he had no idea that Watchmen would become so popular and then, of course, the graphic novel market completely took off and Watchmen became incredibly successful and immediately went into print. And now it's, you know, absent the complete destruction of every printing press in the world, it's very difficult to imagine a world where Watchmen is ever out of print.
1: And not only is Watchmen continuing to be in print, but DC has also started to make Watchmen spin-offs.
2: Yes, so a couple of years ago... Uh, DC released a series of several prequel comics called Before Watchmen, where they got some of the industry's top creators to uh, write standalone miniseries expounding on different characters from Watchmen, uh, like Silk Specter or uh, The Night Owl. And they sort of similarly mature, realistic stories um, that were nonetheless completely out of completely separate from the original series. Uh, and those got were criticized at the time just for their mere existence, but they weren't rejected totally. Like, they sold fairly well, and some of the comics were even kind of good, or good enough, so that critics took them seriously. Um, and so with the success of Before Watchmen, I really do think that DC learned something crucial from that, which is that they could go back to the well as long as it was done respectfully, um, which is why we have this new comic called Doomsday Clock, which is the culmination of a year-long attempt to integrate the Watchmen universe into the regular DC universe, which if you're still paying attention, thank you. But basically now we are in this world where characters like Superman and Batman and the more traditionally colorful, unrealistic, super-powered characters are now beginning to interact with this more realistic Watchmen universe. So it doesn't seem like there should be a way to tonally unite them, and yet they're going for it, and the first issue just came out. And honestly, it wasn't that bad. I mean, unless you're completely offended by the whole premise, which is totally fair. Like, they've done as good of a job as they could with the starting idea of how do we bring these two worlds together, and I bet it's gonna sell very well.
1: What seems to be their strategy in placing these seemingly inconsistent characters in situations and scenes together?
2: So every few years, the Marvel and DC, who are the two biggest superhero comic companies. Uh, they usually start up a storyline to reset their both of their companies histories, just in sort of just to make everything smooth over. Because when you have these characters who have been around for decades, so many parts of their backstories don't line up anymore. And with the Watchmen characters in particular, they are bringing over a character named Doctor Manhattan who has the power of God. And at the end of Watchmen, the original series, the character makes a comment about how he's going off to another universe to create some other type of life. uh, And it's meant to be this sort of Rye comment that after he spends this whole series sort of playing God, now he literally is going to play God. And now DC is bringing that back to suggest that all along he has been influencing the backstories of characters like Superman and Batman and changing things about their histories that they're unaware of until now.
1: Okay, so if it seems like DC is just going to be creating more problems for itself down the road if they introduce this god character that is responsible for things that are happening in the backstories of its, like, most primary characters in the rest of its universe. Mm-hmm. Like, why does DC feel like it needs to mesh these two storylines together? Like, why not continue to build the Watchmen world and profit off of new Watchmen stories that just exist in their own universe, away from Batman and Superman?
2: I suppose it depends on how cynical you want to be. I mean, one guess would just be that they're going to make so much money from doing this because people will not be able to say no to the kind of audacity of it. Um, They first introduced these Watchmen characters to the world with a comic about a year and a half ago where— batman is sort of trying to figure out who he's he's become aware that something has altered with his history and then in the final pages of the comic he comes across a piece of clothing a very recognizable icon from the Watchmen comic which is the smiley face button with the blood over his eye and it is and re-reading it was this incredible shock of oh my god how could they possibly do this i mean. Uh, It's a completely extra universe. So in one sense, there is a creative challenge of like, how do you reconcile this? But I do sort of lean towards the more pragmatic financial side of that they are aware that this will get them a lot of attention, if not a lot of money. And that sort of buzz is really what these companies care most about. Uh, They want to be able to go on talk shows and give interviews in the New York Times talking about their decisions to do this kind of stuff, which traditionally, if they do it right, they will be able to do.
1: So it's basically like Jake Paul and Gucci Mane doing a track together.
2: (laughs) Yes. um, Superman and Dr. Manhattan going face-to-face is the exact equivalent of Gucci Mane and Jake Paul doing a track together.
1: Jeremy Gordon is The Outline's culture editor. Thanks, Jeremy. Thanks. That's it for The Dispatch. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. Erin Edwards and I are here every Monday through Thursday. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Adrian Jeffries. We'll have more stories tomorrow.